I'm Rihanna Dillon and this is Guru Live 2016. The session we're about to hear is a masterclass in storytelling for the big screen. The creative teams behind British films Brooklyn and Thebe will explore the creative and craft collaboration that shaped their story. Get ready to hear BAFTA-winning John Crowley, director of Brooklyn, plus BAFTA winners Naji Abunawa and Anna Lavelle, director and production designer of Thebe. Your host is Paul de Cavallo. Three Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Best Actress and Best Adapted Screenplay. Congratulations, John Crowley, and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this session, the Storytellers session for BAFTA Guru Live Film Day. And as, uh, as introduced, we're really, really honoured to have John here to talk to for the first session uh, of the Storytellers. I'd like John to focus a bit on his early career, like pre-Storytellers, uh, as we're focusing on uh, career starters or, or debut directors and producers and um, other potential heads of department today. So, John, rather than jumping straight to Brooklyn, could you give us a, a little bit about your background as we were discussing earlier? I'm excited that you read English and philosophy, MA in philosophy as well, uh, and then uh, was... Um, got involved in theatre as a student, directing plays in Dublin and then to the West End. I, I did a thing that a lot of um, young people do when they say, I want to be an actor, around the point of 16, they get told, well, you've got to go to university and get that out of your system. And there wasn't a film school in Ireland when I was um, growing up, and I'm not sure I would have been organised enough to get myself to a film school anyway, but I went to university, and there was a very, very active student drama society, so I got involved in that and, and just... Um, found out very quickly that I didn't like acting. I used to get um, too nervous. I, I would get stage fright. But I, I directed a, a one-act play, and something in that clicked, and it felt really right, and didn't look back. I just carried on directing plays. And then I fell in love with directing theatre on its own terms. I mean, it, you know, at, at first it seemed like, well, maybe you could figure a way to, towards a film career. But honestly, it did feel like aspiring to join NASA or something. You know, it felt like, the, you know, I didn't, I'd never been on a film set. I didn't know anybody who'd ever been on a film set, you know, whereas theatre was accessible. And there's a very strong theatre culture in Ireland. I think there's a sort of confidence about it. You could just decide you wanted to be a theatre director and, and then you, you would be. So I then um, carried on directing plays for, I guess, maybe 10 years after I left university. And along the way, I had sort of approaches about, about um, directing films. And um, one of those was Neil Jordan approached me and said, you know, do you wanna, do, have you ever written a screenplay? If you, want, you, know, if you find a writer you want to work with or whatever, I'll produce a film for you. And, and um, that sort of resulted in, in, in intermission, basically. I, um, I saw a play that Marco Rowe, who wrote the screenplay, in, in the bush in West London, and um, fell in love with his writing and and we um yeah we cooked up intermission so and that's the sort of potted history of it you know intermission of course debut feature uh, at age 33 so don't rush you know there's plenty of time obviously john has plenty of years ahead of him a lot more than myself uh but you know i just wanted to bring that um uh to your attention at 2003 that's right right I'm just trying to think. Nominated for... Is it BAFTA as well? 
No, uh, the Douglas Hickox, Biff, the Biff, one of the Biff, Biff, yeah, best um, debut director. Which, in fact, Three Mill sponsors that, well, you sponsored last year for debut director. Um, fantastic. BAFTA award winner that we, we talked about, of course, for uh, Boye mm-hmm. in uh, 2007, uh, and uh, for, for Brooklyn, Best British Film. So, you know, we're in great company. If we move from you know, that potted history then of uh, theatre to intermission where you worked with, again, great Irish actors in terms of Colin Farrell and um, Mr Cheekbones, Killian Murphy, you know, now uh, Peaky Blinders fame, uh, who I experienced first in Danny Boyle's Sunshine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, moving from working with the, the, the playwrights that you've worked with and you continue to go back to theatre... We might jump very quickly then to collaborating with writers and collaborating with Nick Hornby on this one. Obviously, you like to work with, with writers. Um, Pillow Man, Martin McDonough, uh, that you took to um, Broadway and were Tony nominated for. But bringing specifically back to here, how, how do you work with someone like Nick Hornby, these very famous writers and adapters? Uh, with ease, is the short answer, because they... <laughs> You know, you're at, you're at a bit of an advantage if you're working with, with great writers. And, yeah. and in the theatre, I mean, there is a difference between writing in the theatre and, and writing the film, you know, and in terms of the, the process. And, and oftentimes in the theatre, you will receive a play and it will be in, in close to perfect condition. You know, I mean, Martin McDonough doesn't hand the play over until he's certain he's, he's put a full stop on it. Yeah. So it's not negotiable, the play, you know. So uh, it's not, you're not going to go, I like it, but could we do a bit more? You know, it's just, it, it is what it is. And there's this sort of degree then in which uh, directing a play is sort of archaeological. You're going down through layers. You're trying to, you know, un- unpack something. A film screenplay is a very different thing. It's, it's, you know, it might be quite pleasant to read, but it's more of a blueprint. It's like an architect's working drawings, whereas... Plays tend to be closer to like a piece of literature. There's a sort of inherent beauty about them as they stand, you know. Um, That said, Nick Hornby's screenplay for Brooklyn um, was the most beautiful screenplay I've read. I mean, there was was a degree of clarity and confidence that that he had in the the first draft that um, that was really there. And I think that's partly, you know, I'd read the book for pleasure when it came out. And... I wasn't at all sure that that um, there was a there was an, a film immediately lurking within the book. It looks quite internal, mm-hmm. and uh, like a lot of great fiction is. And whereas Nick, and whether it's because he's a great novelist as well, saw really clearly what to leave in and what to, to, to leave out. So I don't take any credit for that. He he knew instantly what. The, and then, but then the process became about sort of moving it from where it was, where and and Colin Tobin is such a, a he's a he's a great prose writer, so his prose will often leave quite a lot unsaid, he, he, you know, and so the, the, there's, a, there's a final beat in the film which isn't in the book, um, uh, because he felt he could never take her back to America, spoiler alert, at, at the end of the film, he had to leave her poised in a place that would resonate in a, in a reader's head afterwards, whereas somehow film needed a more complete emotional gesture than that, so we took her back to the States at the end, and then it was a way of her coming full circle, that would make sense to those of you who, who've seen the film, that, that um, she, has, she meets somebody on board the ship when she's going back to America, and it's like a sort of younger version of herself. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't a question of 
finding the film but with, with working with Nick. It was really about very, very fine surgery to make sure that the emotional shape of the script overall was as dramatic as it could be. Um, and I say as dramatic as it could be, you know, the, the great thing that Nick didn't do in adapting this book was over-dramatize it. Um, because there's not an awful lot happens in the book, really, and not an awful lot happens in the film either. And, and to over-dramatize it, and, you know, along the way, certain financiers suggested that we do a bit more but, and, and uh, beef it up, as it were. It would have ripped the fabric of it, and it really would have damaged it. So, so there was no question that we were going to, to do that. But he also saw very clearly that, that the power of it would lie in a sort of slow accumulation emotionally of power rather than a more traditional, I don't know, Robert McKee inciting incident, something explosive <laughs> happening after 10 minutes. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that wasn't the kind of contract, should I say, that you were going to open up with the viewer for the film. Absolutely, and certainly that's how I felt about it. And uh, I'd love to talk to you a bit more about how you and Nick worked. Because in terms of that pacing, you know, there was one part we were discussing it. My wife and I were watching it as I was preparing for here. And I'm sort of weeping. Mm. And she's saying, well, it's taking a bit, bit slow to get started, isn't it? And I was, tough. Yeah, <laughs> tough audience. But, <laughs> tough so that, audience. Yeah, that pacing yeah. obviously was in the novel yeah. and something that you and Nick decided in how you would uh, take that novel to the screen. Yeah, but ultimately the pacing of the film is decided in the, in the cutting room, really, yeah. is the truth. You know? So, so it, it's, um, you know, there, there's, um, it's a cliche, isn't it? They say there's the film that you write, the film you shoot, and the film you edit. And, and hopefully they, they resemble each other at the end of the day. Right. When you get into the, into the cutting room, how to actually pace it is, is a whole different issue to what was coming off the page. Because a film takes on its own momentum, which is often determined by performance and determined by what the camera is doing. And, you know, it, it, was, it was amazing to me, say, going back to intermission, that when I made my first film, to, to take it into the cutting room and, and, and uh, to find that actually the camera was also double-signaling everything, you know, whereas in, in the stage it's a, an actor and a text, and you direct it, but you, you then step away. Um, and unless you have a lot of multimedia projections, there isn't an extra um, expressive medium. So... The process of, this, of editing a film is, for me, is often about about cropping it right back to the bare minimum and distilling it right down um, from the script, which is a much fuller expression of something on the page. And Nick didn't want to be involved in the editing process until later on. He didn't want to see it. And he wasn't even in, in, in that involved. He's very sort of hands-off once we were happy with the script. He, um, he visited us once and then only wanted to look at something when I was ready to share it, which was sort of later, you know, director's cut point. Because I think he felt it would be more used to me to, to hold off till that point. And he was very taken and very happy that it had a deliberate pace. It was, we didn't set it, it, it hasn't got a slow pace, no. you know, but I swear it doesn't. And <laughs> but it is very deliberately placed, uh, paced, and, and that's because, again, what I was saying, that if you sped up the first 15 minutes, the last 15 minutes wouldn't work. Yeah. So. so let's jump a little bit back to the beginning in terms of choosing the project, yeah. how you, how you uh, got involved in the first place, because it's 
uh, big decisions to be made. You're spending uh, many years of your life in, yeah. with these sorts of feature films. So how did you first get involved? How did you hear about it? And what was the first thing that drew you into it? I had read the book for pleasure because mm. um, I'm a big fan of Conta Beans. And, I, and when I say read it for pleasure, I mean genuinely just read it because I've never really seen him as a dramatic novelist. Mm. So I wasn't picking it up with one bit of my head thinking, I wonder if there's a film in this in any way. And I read it and I was in New York directing a play at the time. And really enjoyed it. And there was a nagging question in the back of my head. Ooh, I wonder if. Unbeknownst to me, around that point, the producers called my agent to want to know, would I like to get involved in a film adaptation of it? Um, and my agent said, he's not available. <laughs> he's going to do another film. So they went away. Um, thankfully, they called back again shortly after that, by which point they had Nick's first draft. And uh, so I read it. And just before I read that first draft, I, I had a real moment of sort of um, trepidation, which is because I love the book. I really, really love the book. And I think it's a very important book, which is what, what if the screenplay's crap? And I needn't have, needn't have worried because Nick had done the most beautiful job on it. You know? um, but yeah, I, f- I think that this story is a story which a lot of people feel they know, which is emigration from Ireland to America. And even, you know, we would, we would come up and we were actually taking this out to get financing, a lot of people would say, well, it feels like we've seen it before. And I would say, which film would that be? And it didn't exist, right? They would say, well, it's a bit of Angela's Ashes. And I was like, mm, believe me, it's not Angela's Ashes. You know, and the, the, it's sort of... Because it tells a story of emigration it, completely, which is you see a young person, and not just any young person, you see a young woman, which made it doubly interesting, because that was an, another thing about the story that I'd never seen before, taken from her home country to America and then back home again, so that the full effect of exile is sort of laid bare and that was the first time that I'd seen that that thing that happens when you emigrate I don't know if, if, I'm sure many of you uh, I'm sure you've all left home but I'm sure many of you um, have come from foreign shores which is that you know when you go to a new city you're not from that city obviously but when you go back home you're not quite from there either anymore and it's a sort of doubleness that opens up in you, that, that sort of, you, you feel that you don't belong anywhere anymore. And when you go back home, of course, you're looked at differently, and of course you see home differently because you're having experiences. And that kind of split that opens up in, in, in somebody, was the, the book was the first time I had seen that condition so clearly dramatised in, in Eilish's choice in the film between two countries and two men, essentially, and two versions of who she's going to be, what, what, what's it... Who is she going to be when she, when she decides? So all of that felt like it was a profoundly important story to tell. And, of course, you know, it, it's set in the 50s, but it, nothing about it felt like a period film to me. Everything felt like it was completely contemporary, which sort of informed the way we went about making it, in a sense. Then, you know, that, so from there, that was really about a, a decision about the emotional immediacy that I wanted a viewer to feel when watching it, that it... That it, it um, which... Co- comes right down to concrete questions about how close you put the camera to the actor's face. And the, I mean, it, it, that's how you begin to now, well, figure out the film. Let's jump to those. You've touched on three um, questions that I wanted to raise, apart from the fact that I've just sold my house right on Bondi Beach to move to London. <laughs> it's <was> very emotional. <laughs> uh, no. um, we talked about uh, the theme of alienation and exile, in particularly from the point of view of a young woman. Mm-hmm. And then you just mentioned it in that parting uh, uh, comment about 
the lingering uh, on the face of um, of Eilish uh, during during the film. So, do you want to expand a bit more about those three things and how they all come together? Yeah, well, I mean, from the being from the point of view of a young woman leaving Ireland in the fifties, what felt quite interesting about it was because it's pre sixties, because it's, you know you're watching a young woman who's negotiating um, uh, an extremely paternalistic, rather sexist world. And she's not in any way a firebrand. She's a very quiet young woman who's actually trying to figure out the rules. So you're, you're, you, in, in lots of ways then, that's laid more clearly uh, at a viewer's feet, as it were, because of the fact that she's already trying to negotiate her way through all of that. Um, making a film set in the 50s on the budget that we had is challenging. And trying to reconvert Ireland, which has been through the Celtic Tiger, and certainly Brooklyn, which we couldn't afford to do, back to, to dial both of those places back to the 50s was just prohibitive. You know? So that partly did determine um, a certain shooting style. And I was, somewhere in my head, I had this sort of idea that, it, that the style of it should almost be like the Dardenne brothers cross with John Ford. Right, that it should start off being almost artless and following her around on her face as if to say this is the canvas on which this story would play out emotionally. But that as she goes to America and as the film's horizons literally expand, that it would, it would head towards a more classical form of filmmaking, basically. So that was the idea behind it. On, uh, um, the, one more thing thanks. to say about that is that you know, after a few days of shooting it became clear that what was happening with Saoirse as well, it wasn't any face that that one was photographing, that actually the quality of emotion that was was coming down the lens that I was looking at was astonishing. And, you know, I think she could have had a great career as a silent movie actress because she has that expressivity in her face. And there were times when we were cutting the film, and, you know, sometimes when you're cutting a, a scene, if there's something a little funky in the scene that you can't quite put your finger on, um, oftentimes you just turn the sound down and just look at, look at the um, scene silently. And it would be amazing that you would never lose expressivity with Saoirse when you do that. It would, it would just still pop off the screen. You might be able to identify which shot was too long or too short within it, but um, those eyes are extraordinarily expressive. So that, that became a more sort of confirmed choice as we were shooting because of what I was seeing. And then working uh, with Saoirse and uh, uh, Gleason and Really, Emery, um, Emery Cohen was really the only newcomer, wasn't he, really? Well, he, I had seen him in The Place Beyond the Pines. Yes. And, which is not a performance that could ever recommend mm. him for this. I mean, he's, an, he's amazing in it. But, um, and it was my casting director who said, you've got to, you know, let's check him out. Because it was a tough part to cast, Tony, because he's a, sort of, you know, he's a young Italian plumber. He's got to be sort of alpha-ish enough to be a plumber in Brooklyn in the 50s. He's also got to be very sensitive and sweet and, uh, and, and be selfless. And that particular combination is tough for young men in their mid-20s because a lot of young actors in America like feeling truthy, you know, they're like, yeah. they, they, they'll punch a hole in the wall because it makes them feel good. But smiling <laughs> or being sweet is... You know, are you in danger of looking like a wuss? Are you gonna... yeah. So Emery was great because he actually he did get that actually that this this young man's journey was about realizing that he's found this person in his life that's so special and that if he loses her, his life's over. Yeah. And you know, he did that very without the ego, which was astonishing. But and I thought he was great in Place Beyond the Pines, but 
a friend of mine did, who, who knows Derek San France, put us in touch, and I, I, I was able to ask him, was he acting in that film? Because it looked like it wasn't acting to me. And he said, no, no, it was acting. He's, you know, he's a very sweet kid. He's like, you know. Um, and, uh, and boy, was he acting. I mean, I'm, you know, he's, he's an astonishing actor, but he really does immerse himself fully. Slightly, slightly methody, actually. And of course, that was too, was interesting as well. Completely different acting styles coming together in a film. You know? And his own immigrant story with uh, coming from Russian Jewish heritage, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Which was great with, with Sersha, too. But going from Brooklyn back to Ireland, I think. She, she was, was born in Brooklyn yeah. and, and mm-hmm. moved back when she was three. But, you know, when, when we were doing the, the, the film, the point between. When I, when I met her to ask her if she'd do it, and when we actually got to shoot the film, which would be about, you know, just over a year later, what changed in the meantime, and this is luck, this is nothing to do with me, is, is a bit of life happened to her. She moved away from home. And having been, in a, you know, she's an astonishing child actress and had been on set since she was 11, she moved to London and got a flat and a boyfriend and had, a, had sort of had a, a, a bit of life and was really very forcefully struck at how homesick she was and it didn't make sense to her um, because she was a very successful young actress and, and, and I guess she thought, which is what I thought when I moved to London in my late 20s directing plays here, I thought homesickness was the preserve of sort of sad emigrants in Kilburn crying mm. to their pints you know, wanting, <laughs> and, and surely if you're in a city and you love the city um, you should just be happy and actually it's, it's, that's the thing that the novel really articulated that it's not that simple it's, it's, um, it's different conditions more universal conditions it's nothing to do with Irishness as well it's to do with exile so, so she uh, when we, and we met two weeks before we were about to start shooting the film and she was in a very particular emotional place which was incredibly homesick and upset about it and felt that she had said goodbye to a whole chunk of her life and couldn't figure out what she was going to do with that and, and bizarrely hadn't quite actually connected the fact that she was about to play a role, which was that exactly. Mm-hmm. And so there was a sort of rawness emotionally to what she was bringing on set every day that was incredible. And, but she was fearless with it. She was able to sort of look it in the face and then use it to, for, the, for the performance. Fantastic. Why don't we open up to people here? Because uh, I know John would be very happy to answer any and all questions that we can fit in in the next 15 minutes. So you um, briefly touched on budgeting. How much does that affect being able to tell the story that you want to tell? Yeah, completely is the truth. Because, you know, it, it, we, we made it for just under $12 million, which is a lot of money. Um, sort of say £8, $8 million. Pounds. But in, we shot in three countries, and it, it sort of went nowhere. And what it boils down to, lack of money, is, is as you know, is, is shooting time, is that you get less and less shooting time. So you're asked more and more, can you make this day work? Can you actually do all of this every day? And um, I come from in, in, when you come from the theatre, lack of money is never an excuse for a lack of an idea, right? In fact, quite the opposite. Actually, sometimes not having money in the theatre is a great bonus because it means you won't rely on a spectacle or on an image as a solution. You have to figure out some other way of doing you know, the siege of St. Petersburg with one light bulb and a couple of coat hangers. You know? and, um, so I think there's a bit of me holds on to that, right? Um, which, which is a way of saying you can be a bit foolhardy because actually it's, it's tough to realise a period film 
And we had to go to Montreal, basically, to shoot Brooklyn. We wound up being able to get into New York for two days. That's all we could afford in the end, which was one day at Coney Island, which I insisted on because I thought there's nowhere in the world can double for Coney Island. I don't care about any you know, CGI. And I didn't want the film to feel CGI heavy. What it meant was that I almost had to sort of nominate my wide shots in the American section long before getting to do them. And that wasn't a huge problem as well for me, particularly, but it might be for some, you know. And, and there were streets in Montreal where we would pick, you know, you couldn't move the camera an inch to the right, an inch to the left. It was, it was everything had to be very carefully planned. So, in, and then it did, it did affect what I mentioned earlier about the aesthetic of it, the actual choice. And I did realize as we were in pre-production and the, and the budget kept shrinking down and down and down and what that meant for the film. Because of course there's that scary moment where you realize you know, it's a very beautiful story. I really need to make this film. You're in. You've committed. There's no, no way you're gonna, you've got one foot out the door. Um, and you go, but what if I can't, with these resources, realize the film that it should be? And you just have to give yourself a kick in the arse and buck up and say, well, you better find some solutions. And, and, and you know, I had a great designer, production designer, um, Francois Sega. Um, who, was, who was from Montreal, and, and I really needed somebody there on the ground because the first time I met him, he said to me, you want to do um, Brooklyn in Montreal? I said, yeah, he said, not possible. And I thought, that's great, that's what I want, because I don't want somebody saying to me, no problem. And then me looking at it going, well, even I can see that's not Brooklyn in the 50s. I need it, I, you know, because the Irish stuff in the 50s, I was able to say, no, I don't believe it. So it, it's, it's also a cultural thing, is that I was n- more nervous about the Brooklyn than I was about, about the Ennis Quarty stuff. So, um, yes, it affects everything, but I don't think in a bad way, if I'm honest, you know. Um, I kind of, it's interesting to me that there are certain kinds of directors who, if you take money away from them, they get better and better. And if you give more money to them, they, they, they don't necessarily get better and better. The, the films get a bit looser and looser. And because if it was, a, if it was about a, a spending money game, you know, Hollywood would win every time. And... and doesn't, does it? You know, that we, we all know that, that the, the stuff that really moves you in a film is rarely spectacle. It's, it can be jaw-dropping, but it's usually not the point. You know? So I, I would never let a lack of money be an obstacle to anything, is the bottom line. Hi, thanks. Hi. Um, I just finished directing my first film a couple days ago. Um, Congratulations. And I go through the editing, and I just have a question about... Um, you know, yesterday we attended there was, a, there was another um, series going on yesterday and I listened to a couple f- TV directors um, and they talked a lot about wrangling people and that a lot of it is trying to bring everyone in a unified vision and bringing them on board and I found that that was a very fun thing to do as a director but also very challenging how do you do it? What, what are the, the things that you do to set up and prepare your team so that everyone's on the same page? Have you kept a few people throughout your um, different productions that you know you want them on your team every time? How do you find them? These kinds of things. Whatever you'd like to share from that about how to get everyone on board. Danny Boyle said something great, which is, is um, if I'm not misquoting, but even if I am misquoting, it's still a great thing, which is your enthusiasm is your gold Amex card, right? And enthusiasm is one of the things that can beat financiers when they're being mi- miserable and mealy-mouthed, and you just have to give it... Now, it's, it can't be pointless enthusiasm. You've got to be enthusiastic about something, right? 
There isn't any activity short of maybe writing poetry or maybe painting on your own that doesn't involve wrangling people in some way. So you're going to have to do that. So you just have to get good at it. And it's not about manipulation. Um, it is about honesty and directness and, and making sure that people trust you. And in terms of, of getting everybody onto the same page, everybody doesn't have to be on the same page. You all have to try and be making the same film. And it is a cheeky line that financiers sometimes will use. We'll go, you know, well, we are, I just want to make sure we're all making the same film, and their film may not be the film that you think you're making. So you have to call that if that's a, if that's a tricky, slippery device that's being used to make you cut your film differently, right? More like they'd like it to be cut. In terms of personnel, you know, I do like to work with the same people again, but I didn't have that luxury on this because it was a co-production with Canada. What that meant was... In order to make that, I, I had to work with Canadian crew, DP, composer, and production designer, um, which is huge. I mean, that was big, you know, and I was very nervous about that. Now, thankfully, I had seen and loved Dallas Buyers Club, um, so I knew that Eve was a great cameraman, not just visually good. For me, what I really responded to in his work was that he responded to actors, particularly to actors' faces, that he had a feeling for performance, which is more important to me than a, than a beautiful picture. You know, Francois, the production designer, I told you about the first meeting with him. He'd also designed a film that I loved many years ago called Jesus of Montreal, which always stayed with me um, as a beautifully designed film, but was a film which was, it was beautiful to look at, but which wasn't screaming, look at me. It was saying, look at this, which is a very key difference that, again, I, I get drawn to. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I'm not sure there's, a gr- there's, there's one sort of thing that you can do. I think that there's a point where we all have a fuck you moment where you think I'm going to fight you. And you have to be careful when that is because if, it's, if you get that wrong, you only antagonize everybody, you know? And it's very hard to hold on to your own belief in it and to not lose your nerve because what is certain to me now having done this and even in the the theatre or in in film is there comes a point where everybody who's set out with you on the journey they will lose their nerve late in the process because it's not quite the film that maybe you set out to make or it's not yet the film they can't see it quite yet and you've got to be okay with that but you have to hold your nerve which doesn't mean being rigid you know and this is why there's no I think formula to any of this sometimes you have to listen and sometimes you have to say no and you, in fact, you always have to listen. You all, you're, right? But you have to listen to what people's criticisms. And, and, but it doesn't mean you have to take them and change the film if they're wrong. And that's what's ultimately exhausting. Is I think somebody said once that you, know, you spend whatever, a year making a film and then two years defending it. And that's true. And I've got, you know, I'm now at this stage, I go, okay, well, that's part of the job, which is defending it. You sort of become um, uh, like a, you know, a, a barrister, for your own film at a certain point. And, and one bit of the, the directing is articulating and then defending a vision, which is a shared assumption, because the film doesn't exist yet. So you go for a meeting with financiers and say, this is what it will feel like, this is what it will look like. And, but you're talking something up which doesn't exist into the world. They might go, that's great, sounds great, we love it. You know, and you might say it might be a bit like this film, a bit like that, but you know, use references... And, and at some point, when, that, when you actually do have the film and it's at its point moving along, because it's never going to be finished till it's finished, but when it's at its most vulnerable, you present a cut and the sound isn't finished, the grade isn't finished, all of those things that aren't finished, people get nervous because it will remind them of other films that might not work so well. And that's the critical moment. And that's the point when you somehow have to hold on to your own nerve about it. Um, 
And yeah, step forward. Good luck. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, thank you. Uh, you spoke earlier about how the camera sometimes was indicating too much in the scene. And I was thinking about because you do both theatre and film, there seems to be like this transition where plays again, as you say, tend to be pretty lopped, so you're able to be a bit more muscular with directing a play, whereas film is so delicate that, you know, the different shot, different music. Um, how do you find the transition between working in those two mediums, and is there any particular one that you find you're able to express yourself most in? I found that once, when I made um, my first film, Intermission, I came back and I did a play called The Pillar Man by Martin McDonough, and it was by far the best thing I'd done in the theatre. I knew, in my own heart, I knew it. And that was partly because, unbeknownst to me, I'd spent ten years directing plays and slightly in denial about the fact that I was directing a play. There's a bit of me wanted to be making a film. So I would often try and make moments work in the way that a film moment works. And I realised after making, and completely making a film, and going through the editing process and everything, that actually there are certain moments that, that my instinct would say it needs a close-up at that point or it needs a wide shot. Or, and, and I didn't quite know that that's what was lurking in the back of my head while directing theatre and, and theatre is a very different thing it's about maximising the liveness of the event that's in front of you and you know emotion is a, is a tricky thing in the theatre you, know, you crack an, a performance once in rehearsals we'll say on a Wednesday afternoon and that you know if you do that for film and the camera's turned on and it's in focus you've got it you can move on in theatre it's, it's only one bit of the process it just means you now have to figure out how to do that truthfully eight times a week for six months, which is a very different job, basically. And, and um, so, so they do have... Working with the, the actors in both cases are, is different. It, it definitely is. One is, is about... A, the process is vastly more important because you rehearse for five, maybe six weeks, and it's very careful to not go too far too soon and to build slowly and incrementally and let it, let it grow. Whereas in film, it's the reason why I think non professional actors can work amazingly well in film occasionally because you're trying to capture um, a moment which maybe is a look rather than actually a beautiful delivery of a, of a, of a speech. I would say theatre is more athletic, you know, that there's a technical side to it, which is if you don't have a strong enough voice, it won't work, you know. Um, but I think film is probably a better director's medium, ultimately. I mean, if, you know, it, ultimately you have to make so many choices along the way as to where the camera is, what's shot size, all of those things. Um, and ultimately it's all about story, right, at, at the end of the day. I mean, and I can't bear work that's screaming, look at me, rather than look at this. You know? But I, for as long as people allow me to jump back between the two, I'm very happy to, because when you go back and direct a play after having been making a film for a year and a half, the speed with which it happens is fantastic. You know, you just, you cast the actors, it's going to open on the 1st of April, you know that. And... Um, you just get on with it. Where films never need to happen. You know, they drift and they drift, as you know. And, and you know, um, and there's a negotiation with films. Whereas the play is what the play is. You cast it, you put it on, and it's sort of, there's a great empirical strength to it. I'm not sure one, uh, uh, well, I, I was going to say, I'm not sure one allows you to express yourself more than I think film probably does a little bit for me, but I wouldn't ever not want to direct theatre. Uh, I just wanted to ask, from your experience, Uh, what, do, what do you think, like, give any advice to us for, like, directing actors? No two actors in the world are the same. So, so it's not about learning one way of, of doing it. 
And I think that what I try not to do, and I don't always succeed in doing this, but what I try not to do is to describe an end point, which is I don't, I, you know, try not to say, you've got to be angry here, you've got to be sad here, because it, 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 you're not giving them the tools to do it. For me, emotion happens um, when somebody meets an obstacle, and then the emotion shoots out the side. So they will be angry about not being able to, I don't know, find the keys for their car or whatever. So you've got to concentrate on that bit. And if you do you find then they, that actors, far, instead of being slightly scary and, and these creatures that you could get it very wrong with and who are emotional and volatile, they become your best friend on set because you're trying to help them crack that moment emotionally. So there, and there are lots of books that you can, you can read about that. It's partly about learning a vocabulary of how to speak to actors and then really watching them very carefully to see what they need. That's what I mean by no two actors are the same. And, you know... Um, the kind of notes that, that Searsha needed, for instance, in Brooklyn, were very different to, to the kind of thing that, that Emery needed. You know? And, what, and wh- where they both arrived to on day one was radically different. Again, it's about holding one's nerve. Is that when I saw them in the rehearsal room together, they were so in two different films. And you can't, you know, your heart sinks. You go, shit, okay, how does it... And how are you going to lead them into the same scene? And Emery comes from a you know, school of improvisation. I've done a lot of that in the theater, but in this instance, I knew that I wanted the text to feel like a classical, classic Hollywood film, which is that it, that it, it um, almost like you know, Clifford um, Odette's screenplays for films in the 50s, that it has a crispness to it. And you can't do that if you're improvising around it and if you're throwing extra words and umming and aahing in it. You know? So I had to sort of almost get them to use the text like an, a, a, an armor and to say, trust me on this, take out the pauses, take out the ums and ahs, have a run at it and he'd do it and he'd go oh, it feels a bit phony and you have to go, again, go at it again and, and again and keep going at it and keep nudging him into the shape of it where Saoirse was much more about emotion but ultimately it, you know it, you have to ask them a lot of questions figure out what, kind, what, what it is that works for them I would, I would often ask any actor of, of any experience what the best experience they had was and what the worst one was and, and they will tell you in no uncertain terms not just about the job who it was or whatever but what it was that they weren't getting in, in the process and why they were, they, they were doing bad work. I mean, every actor in the world wants to be good. Even the most difficult actors, the most truculent, they still want to be good. And they just need to know that you can help them hit that target. And then usually, I've, I've never had a problem with actors, ever. Once, when I was very young, with one actor. <laughs> <laughs> and Lorenzo, the last question. Hey. Mine's really a question of scale. And what I mean by that is, I think probably like a lot of people in this room, I've done a lot of directing, uh, making everything happen myself, three or four people on the day, four or five yeah. people. And I would imagine there comes that day when you step onto the very big set, where you could almost become lost, if you are lucky enough to have that day come. I'm just wondering, are there any assumptions you made on that first day with the trucks and everything else? Were there any things that you presumed you knew that you were wrong about or anything that might guide you through those first few days of being on a big production? I, I think that there's a sort of humility that comes from seeing the scale of any decent-sized, any small-sized film, you know, that there's the trucks, there's the caterers, there's, you know, oh, it's a massive industrial process making a film, actually. Um, so, yeah, coming from the theatre where it's, it's, a, it's a drafty church hall with a table and four actors sitting around to that is, is very different. But here's, the, I think, the, the, the contract with that is that that whole machine 
will do anything for you, right? Which is they'll knock a hole in that wall in 10 seconds and they'll do whatever it is that you need to do to get, if you need a shot from there through. The deal is that you must have done your homework and you're not bullshitting, okay? And there's a key difference as well now between you know, theater and, and film here, which is in the theater, in the rehearsal room, somebody asks you a difficult question, you go, I don't know. It's fine. It's a liberating um, answer. And what it means is, you know, usually it's a, it's a doorway in a rehearsal room into a fantastic moment's rehearsal because it suggests you're all in the same boat. You're all a bit lost, but you're going to try it out and figure your way forward. If you say, I don't know on a film set, it's, you know, people get nervous because they're not interested in the process of you figuring out your head. They want to, it's like a shark. It's got to be moving forward in all directions. They don't mind if you change your mind, in my experience, right? But you do need to have done enough homework to know that you can answer all the questions that are going to, 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 to come at you. Um, but other than that, it's, you know, all, it's, only a, it's only a tool. You make the film. The tools don't make it. And, and that's the other thing, is that sometimes films of scale, um, productions can try and run you a bit. You know what I mean? They can kind of try and make life easier for you. And you've got to know when you're going to be a difficult bollocks and go, I'm sorry, that will make life easier, but it's not right for the film. You don't have to be that all the time. But there are times when you just have to say, That's not, we're not going that way. And this is a more difficult decision, but it's right for the film. So that's about a process of really knowing the film you're making, or knowing 90% of it, and the 10% maybe you keep to yourself that you don't know what you're doing. We're going to have to finish there. But John, before we do, would you like to just tell us what you're up to next? What uh, we can I, expect? I did a play um, in Sydney, actually last August with, um, with Kate Blanchett's company, um, which we're taking to Broadway later in the year, which is called The Present, and figuring out my next film. Fantastic. We look forward to it. Ladies and gentlemen, John Crowley. Crowley. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce Naji Abu Nawar and then Anna Lavelle uh, from Thebe. Naji's the director. And Anna, the production designer. Before we get started into the discussion, let's get some idea about Naji and Anna's backgrounds, I think. Anna, let's start with you, because again, let's uh, move from that theatre background to, to film. I started, uh, well, my first ever design experience. I I did this incredible course at Raza, um, which was designing for Shakespeare, um, which I guess is what kicked it all off. Um, And then I pursued a career in theatre design and had some uh, rather early success. I was very lucky and got some great gigs doing touring theatre. And um, off the back of that... um, uh, a, a colleague, of a, co- a friend of a colleague, uh, asked me to come and work on this film, which is at Three Mills, Rise of the Foot Soldier, yeah. to help them with their costume. And that was my first film experience. And um, just going on the set, and uh, these trucks of uh, crew, and there was, you know, 50, 60 people buzzing around, and uh, they were scrutinising these tiny little details on the monitor and, and I was just like, the, the, the attention to detail that was going on and the energy was what I had been looking for in 
theatre all that time, and theatre is a very slow process. You know, you're and small budgets, and it's you and maybe two other people, and that's it. That's all you ever see, you know, in terms of design. And and this was just a whole other world and and energy to it. And that that was it. I then chose film jobs from from then on and worked my way up. And it was through friends and friends and colleagues that you got uh, involved in this film. It was actually through the, the sound designer, Dario Suede. Um, we were looking for a specific type of person. As with all the, the crew, they needed to fit certain criteria, and so we were brainstorming, and he suggested Anna, and uh, we, we met, and so we went from there. So yeah, it's all about the networks. Yeah. <laughs> me, me and Dario went studies at NFTS, and uh, at NFTS, you, you have your disciplines that you study, but you also sort of merge into others, and you get to really know the other disciplines and the people and your, your, your peers, what they're doing. And so Dario was someone I was really aware of. Well, he was a good friend, but I was really aware of doing incredible uh, work as a sound designer. So when I knew Dario was on this film, I mean, that alone was enough for me to, to go get on board. If okay. Dario was doing it, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> Najee, let's hear a bit more about uh, your background before you got to this film, which was, what, 25 award nominations, 15, 16 wins so far, including, uh, well, you'll tell us later, but um, BAFTAs and Oscars and all sorts of things. But before that, you had a very interesting um, history, both in life and education and and in film. I'm half Jordanian, half English. I I, I was born in in England and and moved back and forth my whole life. I've literally spent half my life in, in both countries. And I always loved cinema, but it was... It was just some, It was a different. It was a world. I mean, I think John was talking about this, where it was just so far removed. It didn't seem like it would ever be a possibility in life. I, I was come from a military family, and uh, I thought that it would be some kind of military or government service. You know, uh, I just that was what seemed to be the, the you know the plan for me or whatever. It's kind of written. And then my my producing partner Rupert Lloyd uh, left university. and He said, oh, "I'm just going to go make a film. You know, I'm going to become a filmmaker." And I just just do that and he said yeah I'm just going to do it so I'm, okay I'm going to do it and I followed him and, uh, and spent two years as a waiter <laughs> so nothing happened and, uh, but I was writing and got into the Sundance Screenwriters Lab the first one in the Middle East they do ones around the world and from there kind of spent about sort of, from 2005 to 2010 just writing uh, wrote several different uh, films and you know um, kind of just learn how to write and some of them got half the finance and fell through or a quarter of the finance and fell through and they were always falling through and got to the... I made a short one short. And you, we were chatting before that is in making that short, you learn a lot. Yeah, that was my film school. Um, that was supposed to be a 25-minute uh, film about the true story of a Jordanian boxer, the first bo- person to qualify for the Olympics. And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, there and it ended up being when the film wasn't a disaster but the process of making the film was kind of a disaster there was like four of us we were all trying to do all the jobs on a, on a film set and it ended up we lost all the sound so it ended up being an eight minute film so what was tw- supposed to be 25 minutes became eight minutes and took two years to cut because we couldn't work out how to tell the story you know without any dialogue or, uh, but it was lucky because the performances were really bad also not because the people were untalented <laughs> they were they were very talented but um i didn't know how to direct them and i didn't and i didn't prepare them to perform and 
that kind of disaster informed my approach on how I was going to work on, on, on Deeb and, 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 and conducting eight months of acting workshops in the lead up and studying how it's done and studying how to develop non-actors and all those things. So all the mistakes that was made on, on, on Death of a Boxer informed the kind of approach for, for Deeb. So it was, it was a really useful experience. Let's start with how you got to the story in the first place. You know, how did the story for Thebe develop and, and did you have a... Uh, yeah, what, what brought you to the project? So I, I left university in 2003 and, and the first idea we had, I, I discovered that... I'd seen Seven Samurai as a child, but uh, the, the NF... back It's called the NFT back then and now it's the BFI. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the one on South Bank. <laughs> they used to do seasons and I saw, like, a load of the Kurosawa films mm-hmm. and particularly Yojimbo and Sanjuro... And I love the way he'd taken sort of the John Ford West and adapted it to, to samurai culture and the whole it got me into the Chanbara samurai movies. I'm a big fan of those. So I went, I can do this with Bedouin culture. I can make a Bedouin uh, Western, like or a Bedouin Eastern. And so that was the first thing we actually, Rupert and I tried to write. And it, it was, it, I just stole off Leone. I just, there was even a character called Ugly in, in the script. That was just a ripoff. And it was really terrible thing. Like, and I was miserable because I just, thought oh, I'm never going to be able to do anything because I'm, this is so bad and we gave up and but it was all we always loved the concept and then um, my co-writer and producer Basil Gandur he got back from USC film school uh, in 2009 or 10 and he brought me this short film script which was going to be his first short film and it was the intimate uh, story of, of two Bedouin brothers on a hunting trip that goes horribly wrong and I, I realized that what Basil had done, um, he's very good at writing sort of relationships between sort of sibling relationships or um, friendships, sort of these male friendships. And, and, and he's very, very, he's got a real talent for it. And, um, and so I, I thought that was the way in. That's how you do it. Um, it's not kind of a, a, a genre concept. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a real story, a, a drama. And, and, and then, you know, any, any similarities to the, to the genre just come in um, <coughs> Uh, but they're not, you're not imposing them on, on the story. And in all the reviews, that, that sense of authenticity was something that everyone comments on. It's Anna's work. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's talk about that then. Not only did the story was authentic, but uh, the look that was created was, was yeah, authentic and, and very powerful. One of the, 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 the points Nadji sort of made straight away was that... Um, that this film had to be almost like um, a time machine. You know, it had to be so real and truthful. Um, but the problem is, is there's uh, with the Bedouin that there's no record of anything. They don't have pictures. They don't have photographs. They don't have books. There's no record of how they lived at that time. So that began this uh, huge sort of research project um, and with, with uh, the Library of Congress and the Imperial War Museum. And we uh, had gone through their archives and uh, used uh, the documents of T.E. Lawrence and other generals that had been out there. And they have, like, first-hand accounts meeting the Bedouin and their rituals and the things that they do. So we were essentially detectives piecing together this, these bits of information and the photographs that he, they took when they were out there and 
you know, there's a, a beautiful Bedouin bride in her, in her clothes, but we were looking like behind her shoulder. You can see, like, you know, is that them making Jameed there? Are they, uh, is this the tent? How are they looping the, the ropes and things like that? And so we pieced together this huge sort of database of images, which we then, I then did a lot of drawings and some models and, and, and sort of putting this information together. And then we took it to the Bedouin and slowly got ourselves in, integrated in, into their world and, and showed them these images. And it was the old women, that, who did, like the matriarchs of the family were suddenly like, I don't know how old she was. She was like, she could have been 100, yeah, right? She, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. she was... And, and it was like, she was like, oh my gosh, yeah, we used to do this. This is a, this is a saddlebag. Do you remember we used to make these? And it suddenly sparked, you know, the, the, the memories and their culture and things that had sort of slightly died out. And then and, and over weeks and weeks of going back and spending time with them, she, she would bring more things out and be like, yeah. oh, this is my spindle that I used to mm-hmm. use. And, and then we'd, like, work out, like how it worked and and this sort of developed this relationship with the women to a point where they were actually making remaking the saddles the the leather buckets the girba the, girba, the water pouch yeah, yeah everything in the traditional methods that they would have been done at the time so that's how authentic this film is. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was, it was very lucky because um, had Anna by chance been a man, uh, yeah. she never would have met. Because I, I never went into the, the the female world within the community. I wasn't allowed in. So by chance, you know, Anna was happened to be a woman, so she had had access. So mm-hmm. she she was able to find this matriarch. So if the production designer had been a man, that never would have happened, mm-hmm. and we'd be in a lot of trouble. So this is, you know, sometimes these things are also. You know, the luck. You know, it's a luck that Anna happened to be a woman as well and got that access to to the to the you know. Because I think the, the process of the film is is a, a story in itself, which is amazing. So you were living uh, with the community or around the community for for a year or so. Yeah, I mean that's you know part of the uh, the, the process of choosing the, the people we're going to work with and choosing Anna is you know we need we need not only talented people we need people who are tough and who had a a creative, problem-solving, positive approach to things. And Anna is someone who's incredibly resourceful uh, and, and, you know, can find solutions uh, to, you know, uh, you know any, any problems under, under pressure and, and is also someone who is personable and can, you know, go to an, into a foreign culture and sit there, you know. It was, it was a very strange situation for her. Obviously, she came, you know, from England, to, moved out to the desert to live in a, in, a, in a different culture. So you need someone who's, who's both resilient and tough, but also someone who's personable and can engage with people, and someone who's resourceful because it's a very low-budget film. And, you know, so you need this kind of combination of, of things, and we found it in her, and, 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 and she came out. And she was the first person. The original core team was myself, Basil Hundor, and Rupert Lloyd, the producer. And she was the first crew member to come in, and that was very advantageous because as... She, the process she's describing of the research, she's also informing the script. And now the ideas that she's coming up with, I'm changing scenes, I'm, so she's contributing to the, to the writing process as well. So that, that was a big advantage. Which is just what John was referring to as well. One of the things that John mentioned also was about working with non-actors and how often uh, he finds them the most honest on, on screen. But 
your process was even more complicated than that. Can you, you want to talk a bit about that and how you got to actually work with these actors? Well, or no, no. the problem is, is like, you know, I'd only ever had one experience of working with people uh, before. I, I've only made one film previously, this short film that went wrong. So I, I didn't know how to direct actors. So it was kind of, but you, you kind of just have to do it. So there is a process of educating yourself and then working out how to educate them, and prepare them for, for a shoot. So we read a lot of books and we studied a lot of films with non-actors that we loved. There's a, specifically an acting coach called Guti Fraga who did uh, City of God, if you've seen that Brazilian film, wonderful film. And we studied, he, he did workshops with the, the kids from the favelas in, 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 in Brazil. So we, we studied his techniques we studied the techniques of a guy called Augusto Ball. Uh, we also studied the famous teachers like Meisner and Strasberg and these people. And then there's a Palestinian-Israeli film called Ajami, and we got uh, the acting coach for that. And he helped us design the curriculum. And he came out at the beginning of the four months for four days and at the end of the four months for four days to kind of kick things off and teach me as well. And, and, and then it became a process of eight months of just kind of winging it and, and doing my best to be a teacher and... You can't worry that you know you have no right to be there. <laughs> you know you have no, you know you have no experience. You've just got to do it. Otherwise, you know, go. Home. And I was reading that um, initially there were um, a number of parts for women in, in the film, uh, and it's Hence very interesting. Dress. Yeah, yeah, and it's very interesting that uh, you know they certainly played a key role in the film, but there are no on-screen parts uh, for women, and that was became apparent through through this process, right? Yeah, we, we went, you know, we, there were key characters, uh, women, particularly Deeb's mother, uh, obviously he's just lost his father, and, you know, so she was an integral part of the film. Um, uh, Hussein's fiance, who's referred to in the film, but isn't, isn't there. Um, we weren't allowed to shoot women, uh, because, you know, one of the things that happened since they've become settled is, you know, and you, you find this, I think, in Native American communities and Aboriginal communities, there's a kind of social degradation that occurs um, when people's lives are completely transformed and they're for forced into a new way of life. And so, you know, there was problems with drugs and alcohol and there's also problems with, like, sort of religious conservatism. And so uh, we weren't allowed to shoot women and I had to cut, I had to make a choice. We don't have a, you know... It's not like here where I can get, you know, an, am an amazing method actress to come and learn a specific dialect, you know, and, and, and become the role. We don't have that in Jordan, so uh, we had to uh, cut the roles, which is sad. But now we're allowed to. Now they've seen the process is respectful, and they, they're going to. Uh, so there will be Anna will get to do a dress. For <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, just to put it in perspective, so, uh, uh, most of the Bedouin or who were involved, like they hadn't even seen a film. Yeah. So to understand the concept of making a film was so alien and what you know what we were doing so it, it was it was difficult and so how did you build that trust then um obviously Najee you mentioned that you know just by being there and working with the women but what else is, is it really just being there yeah I mean you know uh the first the first few uh months was it would just making sure that we're really not talking about the film but letting people get to know you and see that you're a respectful person and that you're not someone, you're not there to cheat them or do some kind of thing or disrespect their culture. You know, you're there to just, uh, you know, and like if you live with someone, you're going to know who they are, you know, yeah. after a short time. Like they, that, there's that saying, if you travel with someone, you really get to know who they are. 
So just by time, uh, they're going to know you, and then hopefully they like you. <laughs> the first two weeks that I was there, I was basically invisible. Yeah. And like they, they, they wouldn't look at me. The, the, the men especially just yeah. wouldn't look at me or anything. And I think there was uh, two things I think changed their minds. They, they had to get that scale electrics. Oh yeah. That yeah, didn't yeah. work. Yeah. So it yeah. was just cars on this plastic thing. Yeah. And, you fixed it. I got it to work. I mean, it was just, you know, the... Yes, you know, I remember they were that. like, oh, my God, this is... Oh, what? You know, this, she, can, she can do these things. So I yeah. had, like, various electrical items arrive at my door for me to fix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I I, they sort of were, like, sort of... Sort, and also, um, I drove the, the Land Rover. Yeah, yeah. Which is... Whoa. Yeah. That was a, yeah. that was a big deal, and so yeah. after that, I think they saw me like yeah. the men saw me as a man, and the women saw me as a woman. And yeah, it was, it was, I, had, I could yeah. get into. Well, she was like my spy because I again I didn't have access to, to to the women, so you know there'd be a wedding or something, and Hannah would come back and go, oh, "This is what you know is going on." You know, tell me all about, find out about this, find out about. So she was like the spy going in and telling me about this world that I, I never got to see. And I was also a spy for the women because they wanted to know what the men were up to. <laughs> like, Double agent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's jump back a bit to the boring side of filmmaking. Because uh, then first feature film director and even though you'd worked with Rupert before uh, and with uh, Basil, first feature film screenwriter and producer. So... Um, what was the process? Did you, how, how did you work together? Obviously very collaborative and supportive but, uh, and got you to a, to a great space. But uh, I think as, as early in our careers as we are in, in this room, I think we could uh, all learn I think the that. key thing with um, you know, low-budget guerrilla filmmaking, which I imagine most of you in this room will be going, that will be your next step to go into, into that type of filmmaking. First, you've got to make the decision to, to make the film. I, I lost out on a lot of film projects that fell through because we always felt we needed to get to a stage of a green light. We felt we needed to, to raise so much money or to reach the budget before we could make the film. Um, or we needed to, the approval of a company or a fund. And what the difference between all those past uh, failures and, and Thebe was we said, we're going down and we're going to make the film. Uh, if we make it on a mobile phone, we're going to make it on a mobile phone. If it's just myself, Basil and Rupert, whatever the, it takes, that's what will happen. And the funny thing about it is when you start that process, uh, it inspires people to, to join you because they can see that you, you, know, you have moved down to the desert. You, you know, it's clear that you're going to do something. You know, it could be terrible, but you're going to do it. Um, and that you know, convinces people to come on board. And that's important because obviously you don't have much money at all. You know, everyone worked for next to nothing on the film or, or, or for nothing. Um, so that, that's a key thing. And, uh, and then, you know, you know, we didn't raise the money till, uh, like, I think, two weeks before the shoot, you know, to, to shoot the film, and we didn't have any money for post. So you have to have that determination just to keep, you know, keep moving uh, through the film. And that, that can be difficult. You know, we, we shot the film for $300,000. At the end, it comes on to, uh, it came under just under half a million. But um, that means that I'm cutting scenes from the film uh, in pre-production, in production, rewriting and merging scenes, uh, at, at night after the day shoot um, poor Anna is losing locations and things you know she's been making or planning you know uh, you know I think kind of what you see in the film is you know maybe like 20% of all, all the work Anna did like there's 
whole there's a whole train station that's not you know not in the film. There's you know designs for for a well uh, that, that's not in the film. You know, um, because that just kept having to get cut the whole time because we we didn't have the money. Um, I, but I think it goes back to what John was saying is um, it, it actually makes for a better film because you have to find a simpler and more efficient way of telling a story. You know, if I'd had the full range of lenses from from Hawk, it, the film would look you know probably completely uneven because I'd be jumping around trying lenses on for the rest of the film because I've never had my hands on lenses before. So I'm, now I want to play with them. Uh, whereas I've got a very you know had a very um, a short range of, of them, so now I'm, I have to be specific about what I'm doing, so it helps. Just to add to that, um, not in this situation where you just have no money, what Naji Basil, Rupert cleverly did, and it really was, was to give it time and allow time, because if you've not got money but you've got time, that, that's where you can really come up with and, and go through options and, and situations. So if you, you're doing something with no money, make sure you give it time. Great advice. So at this point, let's throw open to, to the floor. Hello. Uh, I saw the film and the BAFTA screenings, and I was absolutely blown away by the look of the film and by the little boy's performance. Could you talk about how you made all that, particularly the performance? Yeah, um, we had an incredible uh, cinematographer called Wolfgang Thaler, uh, uh, or Thaler, I always pronounce his name wrong, who was sort of the star of the film, as it were. We were all mostly first-timers or, or, or at the beginnings of our career, and Wolfgang was really kind of the veteran star that came in. And um, we found him by, we, again, we had very specific criteria for the cinematographer, someone who can shoot on film, someone who's used to shooting in very extreme circumstances with limited grip and uh, lighting equipment, uh, someone who is respectful of cultures uh, and can shoot in difficult times, someone who is, a, who is an operator, because um, you know, we, d- we don't have the money for an operator. And Wolfgang is all those things and more. And also someone who's very experienced, because I'd never touched a film camera before. Um, I'd never had the opportunity to... to I'd never, I don't come from... You know, the, the industry, I haven't worked on film sets. That's not where, how I came. I didn't go to film school. So we needed someone who was, who was also had the patience of a teacher and, and a mentor. And Wolfgang is also a, a professor at the, the Vienna Film School. So um, he had all those wonderful qualities. And uh, luckily for us, we were able to, to, to you know, send, get, get the script to him. And he, and he loved the script, and, he, and, he, and so he wanted to make it. Um, so that's, you know, this, the amazing work of Wolfgang uh, Thaler and... Uh, uh, the boy was luck as well. The boy, uh, we needed, we, again, trying to raise money, we decided to do like a, a mood board or like a trailer for the film to try and show investors what we were, th- the tone of what we were doing. Because when you say Bedouin Western, or no one really understands, it's difficult to envision. And we just, I asked the local kind of producer, Eid, um, Bedouin uh, producer, to find us a 12 year old boy, and he was lazy and he just sent his son. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I was actually really mad because I obviously I'd been living there for a while then and I knew Jas who plays the role of the very well because Eid was like our main contact and the first person that we met so I was always around at their house and he was a very very shy boy always in the corner never speaking and so I thought I'm, I'm, I'm done for because this kid is not going to do anything and it's going to be you know now we're not going to get the money and, and it's that special thing when you put someone on camera and they just the magic happens um immediately started uh, improvising and, and doing little things. It was utterly natural, and we knew that um, 
he was the one, and, and, and I cast him then and there, but I didn't, we didn't tell him. We didn't tell him for the full year. We, we, we told him uh, uh, about a month before pre-production that he would be the main character in the film because uh, I didn't want to put that pressure or, or thing on him. He was just a part of the workshops, and, and no one, we didn't actually tell him the story until a month before. We'd spe- been speaking it, to it with the old men, and I'd been taking ideas from them and taking story elements from them, but I had never really like, told them the, the actors the story. Uh, I was just wondering, um, when you're making a film based on historical events and historical uh, things, uh, are there any taboos or things you should avoid when you're doing that? I mean, it's a difficult question. I tend not to like to do things on real people. So the history, the, the world is real, but I haven't got any historical characters in there that, that are real uh, people. The, the character of the Englishman is based on the, the, the real guys on the ground, the real royal engineers, a guy called Herbert Garland and, and, and Colonel Newcomb. Um, and those were thoroughly researched, and, and Edward is kind of amalgamation of the two of them. And they were the real Lawrence Arabia. Lawrence Arabia was a political officer. He wasn't on the ground blowing up the railways like in the film. So it's based on those, but yeah... It's a difficult question. I, I, I'm about to, I might do something soon on, on, on something historical. And, and, and the, the biggest concern I have and the biggest moral dilemma I have is portraying a, a real person. I, I'm, I'm, I, I haven't got my head around it. It's, it's something I'm actually quite worried about. So when you start out, apart from passion, how do you get people to buy into your vision or your projects for very little or for free, like you mentioned? Uh... <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I suppose it started for me with writing. Those were the first bits of support I started receiving. People started liking what, what I was writing. And, they, and so my, my first producer uh, was obviously Rupert, but then the first person that gave me money was Nadine Tukan, who's the executive producer on this film. She gave me uh, uh, $500 uh, to make my short, and there was another guy who also gave me $500, and that's how I made it for $1,000. Um, and she'd like my writing. So that's how it started for me, because it is very difficult, especially when you don't have any shorts under your belt. And even with, with making Beeb, you know, I don't really have much to sell for myself. As a director, I have an eight-minute short film that was supposed to be 25 minutes, and so <laughs> people are not really willing to write a check for you because you, your films have come really short, you know, and you don't want to do that with feature. Uh, so it's difficult, but it, it is, I, I do think it is hard work and enthusiasm. It's... It's showing people that you are willing uh, and that you are dedicated to this and that you, that you will be the, you know, the first one in and the last one out. And I think that when people see that you're serious, they'll give you, they'll give you a chance. I think in terms of creating up, um, so if Naji's approaching me to do a job for not much money, I think the key thing um, is being honest and... Uh, don't big yourself up in, you know, that, oh, yeah, we're thinking about maybe getting Hugh Jackman on or whatever. Yeah. You know, if you're not, like, just, just be really honest and, and say that you don't have money but, and, and say why you're passionate about the project. I mean, that's, that's what's going to sell it, you know, what, why you're passionate about your film and the story. That, that's all that matters at the end. Oh, hi. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. Um, I'm just wondering, because it's made in the same location as Lawrence of Arabia, the same period and so forth. The thing that I thought was really interesting about uh, Lawrence of Arabia was the virgin footprints on the sand and so forth. 
which was really important to the director, but it meant he only had one take every time and the whole thing would have to move to elsewhere. Did you just make sure you was on hard ground or did you also look for nice footprint shots? It's, it's incredibly difficult shooting in the desert for, for that, and that's one of the biggest reasons. Also, you know, there's, you know, because it's such a vast open space, 10 kilometers away, there's a Jeep just slowly trucking through the desert as you're trying to make your period film. Um, you know, and you can't send someone over to go get rid of him because it's just, you're in the desert. Um, so that is tough, and you'd have to prepare for that, the way that the crew entered the space, where we parked the vehicles, the kind of order of how things were, you know, how we kind of landed and, and disembarked as a team in the setup for shoot. That was all carefully planned for each location. Um, because if you made a mistake, it would cost you hours uh, trying to backtrack and solve that. And, and we literally swept the desert. Yes. Like yeah. the whole crew had sweeping brushes. Naji, yeah. Basil, producers are there sweeping, sweeping the desert. <laughs> and we, we uh, um, Sammy, the um, art director, he uh, sort of came up with this genius contraption <laughs> of um, where he had uh, like uh, chains and um, we had like... Um, uh, pipes full of water and things like that, and we we we, we um, rigged them on the back of trucks. And so this was like our art department trucks, and then behind it we had these big pipes and chains to drag and and erase all our tires wherever we drove in the desert. So you you sort of come up with tricks. There was like we tried so many things. There was uh, the, one of these bl- the woolly blower things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and there were big fans, and so it just it was. And it, it put pressures on, on various locations. Like Naji says, we, we had to walk in all the equipment like quite a distance in, in a lot of cases. To Yeah, avoid. Pilgrim's Canyon, we, everything had to be... They had to go down a sidewall and then we'd have to walk the last 50, 100 metres into the canyon. In, in sand that is like, it's yeah. like trudging through water. It's, yeah, yeah, that was tough. Really tough. You're, rem- you're reminding me of all these Sorry. things. I've forgotten about all of this. You mentioned in the beginning that you always wanted to make um, a Bedouin Western and that you tried or you, you've written some stuff that it wasn't, it wasn't so, so good. So, um, and then you said that you read the, story, uh, you read the, the script that your producer brought you, uh, which, was, which had the basis uh, of two characters and their relationship. And then it worked. So what you actually meant was that you, you focused primarily on relationships and on people to make the story work and then wrap whatever you wanted to make around it, or...? We, we had, we, you know, and I, I, for me, this is how... I mean, other people make films other ways, and by no means am I saying that one way is better than the other, but what I found for, for the, what I like to make is that um, if you start with a, like, okay, you have a, a concept or a genre, and that, that's great, but... Um, Really, that's just a, a starting off point. That's just something, you know, oh, I, that's a cool idea, and you have that feeling of, like, you fall in love. And that's always the same thing for me is I have a eureka moment, I, f- I fall in love, and, and then I, I begin. And what it really, for me, should be about should be about the character and, and, and those relationships and developing that. Then anything that comes from the world of the research and, 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 and you know, again, like Anna and the, the, the team are informing the script as well. Anything that comes in in terms of genre... 
should be organic from the world and not imposed. And that was the rule. We could never, you know, as writers and, and directors and producers, the, the rule from the get-go was you can never take a genre element and impose it on, on the world. If you find something within the world, you can then inform that into the story. So the railway, all these things, these are all things that are, that are part of the world of the Bedouin and, and the very important things to their history. And then it was, oh, okay, well, that works because that's classic kind of Western thing. Yeah, but it was, always had to be organic. And, and for me, it always has to start with the character. I was wondering, could you speak a little bit more about the process that you went through to finance the film, the journey that you went on, and where you got your money? <laughs> we started the film with no money. We developed it for a year whilst we were looking for the tribe. We spent a year touring the desert looking for the tribe. When we found them and moved down, we moved down again. We're, at this point, we're, we're living out of our own pockets. Um, and then we got a development fund from uh, the Senad uh, fund. Uh, we got rejected the first time around, and the second time around, we got the fund. Uh, we got $11,000. Perhaps shouldn't say this, but um, you know, that was supposed to be for a writing fee, but what we always knew that we were going to use that to pay for the workshops. Uh, but we knew that it'd be difficult to convince them that, so we didn't apply. <laughs> in those terms, we, but we, that's how we funded the workshops in, for, for the eight months. So in the lead-up to the film, we had $11,000. I can't even remember how we raised the money to get Anna over, but again, Anna was working for like next to nothing. Uh, if not nothing, I can't actually remember, but pretty much <laughs> next to nothing. Um, and she had a tiny budget as well uh, to work with. I have very creative producers, and that's the key, a key element of filmmaking. Producers really don't get enough respect Producers are artists, not only in the creative process, but in, in the creativity of finding money and, and working out how to best spend it. And you know, you tend in, in the festival circuit and the independent scene, the directors tend to get treated like the stars on you know on the on the circuit, as it were. But the producers in this film are the real stars because what they did is they found out of the box ways to find money. So they'll go to corp- corporate social responsibility and they'll get money from a mobile uh, telecommunications company. And anyone thinking about that would be like, how, how is a mobile phone company going to fund, help fund a film in 1916? But they, they knew that there are, there's some competitiveness going on between the companies, and they wanted to, they proposed that you can prove that your reception can reach further in the desert than any other reception. Uh, so they got CSR money so that, you know, that we could get phones and things, and they gave us some money as well for the workshops to prove that they had the deepest reach into the, the, in the, the depths of Wadi Rum Desert like no other mobile phone company can. You know, and, and, and the same thing with the acting workshops. You know, they, they found money that's not for film, so they went to banks and got uh, corporate social responsibility money that no one cared about the filmmaking side of it, but they were very interested in finding uh, uh, sk- skill education and employment uh, opportunities for the impoverished Bedouin, Bedouin community. So actually, we got funding for, for a lot of that stuff, for, for all the Bedouin salaries, um, from uh, a bank that couldn't care less whether it was a film or not, but it was more to do with the fact that we were doing that. So they came at the problem from several different angles, and sponsorship, all that water sponsorship again, quench your thirst in the desert, so we got you know, all the water for free, um, which is actually really important because you are in the desert, and so water becomes a huge expense in transporting it, so that was an amazing cost-saving thing. 
um, when we still had water in the edit, you know, a year later, we were still drinking the same, <laughs> uh, same water. Um, so, yeah, it's great producers. Um, you know, don't approach, you know, everyone always, a lot of people approach, and I did, filmmaking, trying to join the industry and do what the industry does. Well, that's, for me, the, the wrong approach. You should, you should find different ways to find the finance and be creative about it because uh, the industry is actually incredibly wasteful, I find. Like, as I get to know it a bit, I'm seeing, you know, when I see, observe these things, people are wasting a lot of money. And actually, it's a good advantage to you to have worked with producers that know how to uh, save and spend it in the right way. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great experience going forward. Just remembering that water, we had at my art department, I had a, this, uh, this sort of uh, barn, I guess, in the Bedouin uh, yeah. village, and that was my art department allocated space, which I had to check for snakes and scorpions on a daily basis. <laughs> but I, I went to go to my uh, art department, uh, yeah. and I opened, opened the doors, and there's literally just a wall of water bottles. Uh, they'd filled the barn with yeah. I, I do want to explain my Matt Damon uh, comment because apparently having shot on Super 16 and doing it on film uh, and he was in the area filming The Martian and was shown the trailer uh, and was uh, very impressed and uh, yeah that was weird yeah it? so and again this is really good it goes back to your point the question you were asking so the Bedouin got, we actually did, you know, they did have skills. We did, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't a fake thing we were saying. They really were trained and did have skills. You know, and the actors and the crew have gone on to get regular employment in, in not only foreign films, but local films and TV series. So a lot of our Bedouin crew were actually employed on Ridley Scott's film, The Martian, when it shot there. And one of the guys in the production design team were actually trained with Anna. Um, he came up to me one day, came and visited me in, in Amman. And he said, uh, I, I, I met some, apparently he's some big dude, there's an American film, and it's about, uh, what's the, trans- the translation, like it's about a star man. And I'm like, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? And he goes, yeah, here's the photo, and it's him with a selfie with Matt Damon going, <laughs> like that. Um, so he, they'd shown him the trailer and he really enjoyed it, and yeah, he's, he was a very nice man. Yeah. There you go. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. John, Najee and Anna, and to 3 Mills Studios for partnering on this event. If you're interested in the creative writing process in other sectors, then why not listen to our game's storytelling panel? That's all at bafta.org forward slash guru, or search Guru Live on SoundCloud.